had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Welcome. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear. So delighted you joined us on Transformation and Change Radio. I am particularly excited about the conversation today. We'll be talking about rethinking the SAT and other ACT standardized tests, dismantling racism in classroom. You know, classism. You know, when I was growing up, I remember taking the Iowa basic skills. I don't remember what it was called. This was over 55 years ago. Never questioning that I should or shouldn't take these tests, PSAT, SATs, GREs. And to be honest, I got a real ego hit out of whatever scores I got until my sister um, got better scores. And then I thought I wasn't as smart. So I bought in to this idea that they really showed your current level of intelligence and you know potential. Never questioned until decades later, I started to see more research and preparing for this Radio show, I've learned so much and yet still know so little about how these narrow metrics, SAT, ACT, standardized testing, really do reinforce this racist, classist, Mm -hmm. segregated ways we do it. So I just want to welcome incredible colleague, friend, and guest. Hello. Thank you for joining me, Marta Escaline. Hello. Hello. I'm so, so happy to be here with you today. You know, I was remembering we met years ago at, I believe, NCOR, the National Conference on Race, Ethnicity. I'm thinking the White Privilege Conference. Right. maybe. And just as I've gotten to know you and then learned about your great work as an assistant professor, associate dean of the Honors Living Learning Community, Rutgers, Newark. Yes. You were just telling me a bit ago of how you all have really turned things on their head and have incredible results. And so I wanted to... I'm so grateful I wanted you to have you on the radio show to just talk about not only why these tests developed, why they're still used, how thousands, I think, at least hundreds of places, colleges, universities are no longer using them as tests required, but really why we still use them and the damage and all. So mm-hmm. welcome, welcome. Thank you. Would you mind? Uh, oh, I hear Diana is here. Diana, come on. I just got a chat. We were hoping. (laughs) Great. Oh, you're going to bring her on the break. Oh, if you can bring her in now, that'd be great. As we also joined by Diana Noriega, who not only is the director of diversity, equity, inclusion, and good shepherd services, but part of and leading with Maya Wiley, I believe the work in New York city, mayor de Blasio, committed to looking at how gifted, talented programs, especially in those specialized schools, have really reinforced whites, and in this case, many Asian Americans and immigrant Asians, immigrant 
immigrant nations having access, whereas the systemic racism and classism has really blocked Black, Latinx, Latinos. So mm -hmm. hopefully they'll be able to bring Diana on. Um, mm -hmm. Till then, would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself and why you think it's important that politicians, educators have to rethink using these standardized tests? I will, and I'm so happy to be here. Um, I want to start the way that you did, Kathy. I think it's important to just um, mention why I am so passionate about this work. Um, on a personal level, um, I am an example of someone who uh, did not do well on the SATs. Um, it just for many reasons, which I've later learned um, about through my work, um, I, I just did not score well. However, um, I was an example of someone who then went on to had the opportunity to go to college and uh, after a little bit of struggle did exceptionally well and I've continued to do really well um, in my career. I went on to get uh, my degree at Teachers College um, at Columbia and have been interested in issues of access and equity in higher education um, and K through 12. Um, for my entire career over, you know, for about 20 years now, I've been working um, with high school students and men at the college level, um, thinking about why it is that so many uh, Black, Latinx students from under-resourced communities are not represented in the most elite institutions or minimally represented. There's such disproportionality. So, so you know, so many... Um, disparities as it relates to income and race. Um, uh, in honors programs and gifted and talented programs, K through 12, and again, at our most elite institutions. And this is important because as we know, these institutions are really the, um, the pathway or you know, sort of the, the, the gate, right? Um, opens opportunities for people in terms of success and upward mobility. And those who are represented in those most elite programs are also represented in leadership across various sectors in our society and are at the tables where decisions are being made. Um, and that matters uh, when we think about um, the purpose of education, right? The connection between education and our democracy. And if we look at what's happening, and has happened for a long time, but right now in our country, we have some real challenges. You know, the people who are making decisions, even just visually, right, looking at them, but also, um, you know, who they are, what they represent, they do not represent most of the people who live, the citizens of this country. And um, I am really concerned about um, how those decisions are being made. So uh, one of the things um, that's important to note is that, um, you know, one of the greatest barriers to a lot of these um, gifted and talented programs to honors colleges, I work at an honors college right now at Rutgers Newark, we're revolutionizing honors and elite institutions are these, particularly the SAT and the ACT, um, which is what I can talk about. And, um, you know, uh, those scores are often in combination with a GPA used as the primary criteria upon which students are admitted. So we really need to look at that test um, 
what it claims to measure, what it actually measures, um, and why it's still in use. And that's where we're headed. I had a quick thought and then we'll bring Diana in. Mm -hmm. um, given all the scandals of yes. wealthy whites, at least that's my understanding, hundreds. Yes. Uh, and then as I did a little research, how many more whites apply for 504 exceptions to have longer time to take the specialized tests in NYC? And it's twice as more likely if you get more time to get into these specialized schools. So, I mean, there's just so many ways that whites and with resources and privilege have found a way to move around. New thought, and then we'll bring Diane in. It, I realized that if I look at who the whites have been in leadership in our country, to my knowledge, has not really mattered what their performance was in college or their SATs. So are we really using juries, SATs, these standardized tests to keep black and brown folks down, whereas whites can find all kinds of ways to still be seen as smart. New thought, I could be way off. Diana Noriega, I'm hoping, I know we just have your audio. Would love you to, if can unmute you, to bring you in and just talk a bit about, a little more about yourself and some of your passion, why it's critical we do this work. Doesn't look like you're unmuted, so they may not bring you in. Okay. Oh, oh wait, is that working? Yes, yeah. we have you. Come oh, okay. Welcome. Wonderful. So, yes, I will say, so I actually oversee um, the anti-racism and equity work at Good Shepherd Services in New York City, and I'm also a member of the New York City School Diversity Advisory Group, which recently in the past two years has made recommendations to the mayor around how to desegregate New York City public schools. Personally, I am a graduate of the New York City public school system. Um, and did not participate in any gifted and talented programs, did not go to any specialized high schools, but became a recipient of the Posse uh, Scholarship, which opened up a tremendous amount of doors had I otherwise not had access to that kind of investment in my learning and growth and development. Um, so the work that we're doing, particularly around the New York City School Diversity Advisory Group, why it's so important is one, people don't realize New York City is the most segregated school district in the country, mm. and yet it's the most diverse. That uh, doesn't really make much pragmatic sense, but it is. Um, so what we did was we crafted recommendations on how to create access to resources and opportunities that weren't so exclusive so that more students could get the growth and the support that they needed to be successful in K through 12 and then in college. We have come across a tremendous amount of resistance um, to our recommendations, particularly around gifted and talented, which is, starts with our earliest learners in elementary school. And what we have found is that gifted and talented in some ways becomes a pipeline to access to better schooling from K through 12. And yet only 5% of elementary school students are in gifted and talented programs. So there are a lot of challenges with the system that start early on, not just in the college years. And so we, we, we tried to create a set of recommendations that would change the current system, but again, has been receiving a lot of pushback. And more than happy to share a little more about why that has been a challenge and the current construction of the system. Totally, that's where we're going. Thank you, and, and thank you, Marta, for introducing me to Diane. I'm so excited to have you all both. So could you talk a little bit more, 
both of y'all about the origins of these tests and yeah. why they were created. Because mm -hmm. I think most whites that I get to meet when I'm doing consulting or training have never thought about these things generally. And this conversation, they'll be like, see, there we go again. We're having to make special accommodations and just all those racist classist mm -hmm. resistance with Diana is I'm bet fueling some of the resistance to the recommendations of your committee. So mm -hmm. some of the origins and why we still use them when there's so much research that shows they don't predict anything anymore. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's really important. So I think most people, Kathy, you mentioned it when you first started, um, equate your scores on the SAT or ACT with intelligence and ability to be successful in a college environment. Right. Um, and so if that is your um, understanding of what the test is, then of course you would say, well, why would we question this? Why, why should we look at students who have lower scores on this intelligence test or this test that tells us your ability to do well in school um, and, and take those students over students who are actually prepared, have higher scores and are more intelligent, right? So, um, so there's a couple pieces that are important. The first one is the SAT was actually developed, um, just so we can understand the origins of it. Um, in 1926, um, the college board, yep, the college board selected Professor Carl C. Brigham, who was a Princeton professor of, of psychology and a leading figure in the growing anti-immigration movement of the time, just so you understand this, to spearhead the design of a new nationwide college entrance exam to determine who should have a seat at the country's most elite institutions. This information, just Lonnie Gunier has a book called um, uh, The Tyranny of Meritocracy. Um, we can maybe uh, send this to your viewers, right? It's, it's about testocracy in the United States, but she has a lot of great material here. So just to understand, um, and, and so this test was developed as particularly Harvard, right? We started to think about, um, okay, beyond our nation's most elite who are attending, you know, cause at that time it was really just the most elite within the country. Well, they started to look at, um, you know, uh, people who fell outside of uh, the, the most elite circles. And so they said, well, how would we determine who could really be, um, you know, in these spaces? So what happened was of course, um, Harvard adopted this is the new gold standard, right? And um, the test demonstrated exactly what they thought that the elite possessed unassailable merit, okay? And so just to understand the history of it is important because uh, when we think about bias, it's both the kinds of questions that are being asked, right? And um, for anyone who's ever taken the test, you understand this. I think this was one of the biggest surprises that I got was, so many of the questions had nothing to do with what I was learning in school. Yes. <laughs> right. And even the strategies and methods that you needed to do well were only strategies. They were not intuitive. They were learned through test prep. So you can see, as we saw with the college scandal that's happening right now, those that, so the SAT really measures um, most um, accurately your financial um, 
how much money you have. Okay, your economic circumstances, because those with the money to engage in lots of test preparation do better on the test, right? um, As well as those who have parents who are college educated and have taken these kinds of tests. And if you add on top of that, um, there's a lot of research about stereotype threat, right? Claude Steele's stereotype threat, thinking about the impact of sort of the knowledge that someone who is black or Latinx or, or a woman, right? the knowledge of the stereotype that we are intellectually inferior, how that impacts your score on a test, right? The anxiety around that there, and that research also comes into place. So for a variety of reasons, there are real disparities in the average score. So just in, 2000, in, in, in 2013, um, there was a study done by William Hiss and Valerie Franks, right? And they they um, reviewed the performance of more than 88,000 students. And what they found um, were these disparities by race, right? So just some figures so that we understand. Out of an average score of 2,400, Black African-American, 1,278, Mexican or Mexican-American, 1,354, Puerto Rican, 1,354, other Hispanic, Latino, 1355, American Indian, Alaska Native, 1427, other 1501, white 1576, Asian, Asian American, Pacific Islander, 1645. So the question is, why or why do these disparities exist? Is it really in such um, distinctive ways, right? And so on top of all of that information, it also the college board itself. Um, the organization that actually developed this test has um, stated that the test does not measure, and and lots of studies have shown this, a student's um, ability to do well in college or to stay in college. What it does measure very slightly is what their GPA might be their first semester. But other studies have shown that actually the best indicator of college success is your high school transcript and your grades. So The question is, why do we continue to use this test? And so many colleges and universities now, well, not not enough of them, but a number of them, as we can see from the UC, right, the the latest um, lawsuit against the um, UC system, um, and a a number of reputable colleges and universities have said, you know, we're not going to use the SAT. But that has a direct um, impact on their ranking within US College News and World Report. Right, which we know is the number one source for families to determine where they want to send their students to school and has an impact on um, funding. I mean, there's so much that's wrapped up in this testocracy. It's very interesting. New word, testocracy. I'm learning so much. <laughs> you said 1926. In my understanding, the eugenics movement, as in yes. fake science saying who is smarter based on studying the skull, all those same racist dynamics that were happening to support slavery and the genocide of Native Americans stealing of the lands. And it was also the resurgence of the KKK around the mid-1920s. So the intersection of these plus leading anti-immigrant. So Diana, please come on in and come, just add what you want about any of this origins, why we're still using this is brilliant stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I will start very particularly with, with the elementary school because I think that has been fascinating. So when Bloomberg became mayor in New York City in the 2000s, we, prior to his entrance as mayor, we actually had a third grade gifted and talented model 
which was already using multiple measures and it was based on school districts. So school districts controlled the process. When he became mayor, he said, I want to create a more fair and equitable system. And this is the danger of not paying attention to unintended consequences. He therefore then introduced a test for four-year-olds. For four-year-olds. Four-year-olds. Around, yes, a four-year-old. It went from third grade admissions to a four-year-old test, a single measure indicator for gifted and talented. Prior to him, it was 53% Black and Latinx. And then after him, what we're looking at today is 18% Black and Latinx students and gifted and talented. So it has drastically gone down. Um, what we have found, what the research shows is one, no one in the country is, is doing gifted and talented in that way, nor is it recommended by the National Association of Gifted and Talented. Uh, they recommend an older age, multiple measure kind of indicator for gifted and talented. Um, but this is what we have found the impact has been. The reason people are still uh, clinging to it is it's one of privilege. There's something very much uh, that gives an air of prestige. My child is gifted. Um, even though the test is really testing for access to socioeconomic resources, because what we have are private tutoring companies right. really kind of offering services to these parents who have money, who can pay for it, and some of whom don't, but who will struggle just so they can prepare their three-year-old to take a test at four years old. Mm -hmm. When you take the test, you're not even in the room with your parent. You go into another room, into a building that you're not familiar with. And so, again, you're not even put at four years old in an environment that's even comforting or welcoming to your learning and growth. So what, that's kind of why we land with 5% of elementary school students are, gifted, are in gifted and talented programs. Then what happens, which is only 2% of the overall public school population, what happens then, let's say you do even take the test. New York City also has a system where you have to apply to take the test, and then just because you pass doesn't mean you get a seat. You're not guaranteed a seat into gifted and talented programs because there might not be a seat in your district. So you then have to find out where do they actually have seats at um, for you to be e even able to kind of join that program. And so now what we have started is a pipeline of inequity. And so we see this kind of trickle on down. New York City also has eight specialized high schools where you have to take a test, and it's also admissions based on a single measure. Recently, the mayor um, had proposed eliminating the test, but that would require involving the state because a law was written into um, practice in the 70s to actually create an segregation and to make this, this single measure kind of admissions policy um, the, the way to go. Um, the mayor has lost that battle, and a part of the, the people who have been advocating to keep that test, as again, a single, it's all about where you rank. That's literally the only kind of way you get in. So your middle school grades don't matter in this process. So you're not even encouraging young people to perform well in middle school. You're also, there are feeder schools that go to these specialized high schools and middle schools. So you can see the data that shows a direct correlation between students who attend these middle schools, certain middle schools that are highly selective already, um, getting into these specialized high schools, which increases segregation. Um, so it's all connected in many, many ways to segregation efforts. So mm -hmm. what we see is on the high school level, 
in these specialized schools, only 2% are students with uh, English language learners. Only 54% in the highly selective schools are um, students in poverty. So there's a direct correlation between access to resources um, and race and socioeconomic status. The New York Times did a major piece on uh, Stuyvesant talking about how only, I think, five or seven black kids got into Stuyvesant this year. So th th these things are so much more interconnected um, than we like to own and realize. And the fight has really been about prestige in some ways. Whether people are willing to name that in an explicit way, that's what this has become about. Um, so we heard from the people on the high school, which we didn't make those recommendations, the mayor did, but we had heard, you know, you need to fix the pipeline. Focus on the younger kids, change the system. So then we came up with the recommendation to change gifted and talented and to eliminate the four-year-old test, uh, to eliminate the nomenclature of gifted and talented, because with that already creates a, a degree of difference. Um, and we got a lot of resistance. We got a lot of resistance. So then that has, le has left us as a group. Well, we, we did our research. We tried to present solutions that would expand opportunities from low-income neighborhoods that would increase integration by racial, racially as well. And um, people are not willing to kind of take up this conversation. Um, there's been a tremendous amount of resistance. So, and the only thing we can come down to is, are people holding on to things because they're afraid in part of how this is, this is going to impact their individual child? And what does that mean for the collective? Are we doing this for the greater good? Or are we just so focused on the individualistic kind of capitalistic nature of our society that we're missing out on an opportunity to help everyone kind of rise to the occasion? Mm -hmm. And how much is what you're saying, joining with Marta, about at the national level, this intense fear and resistance and backlash from so yeah. across economic statuses, educational statuses, that there are so many more folks of color in our country mm -hmm. who are now the majority in how many states in elementary school. And so this utter fear that folks of color will move into power and positions more often than they are and will do to us whites what we whites have mm -hmm. done to people of color and indigenous. So I might be getting way psychological here, but I think that's one of the deepest fears of whites because we know the systemic, persistent, intentional white supremacy and racism and classism, they're so interrelated, that we have done for centuries. And we need to take a break. What I'd love you to do before break, I need to breathe. My guess is all the listeners do too is would you let folks know how they can contact you to learn more and particularly if they want you to come speak at their organization or come do training or consulting, if that's the work you do in the world. And at the end, I'll ask you to do it again. So if you're willing to just share any resources, how can people contact you to learn more? Sure. So, um, you know, we'll talk about it after the break, but in addition to critiquing the systems that reinforce these um, divisions and the stratification, I also build new models. And so that is what we have done at Rutgers University North and what I do um, within different settings, um, building uh, new ways or understanding, well, how do we determine um, or expand the criteria upon which uh, students are selected or intelligence is measured or ability to be successful, et cetera. Um, I can be reached 
uh, either via my website. My website is martaesquilin.com. That's M-A-R-T-A-E-S-Q-U-I-L-I-N.com or info at martaesquilin.com. Uh, so I, I, we have a website for the school diversity work in particular. If folks want to take some time to dive deeper into the report, I highly recommend it. It's uh, www.schooldiversity.nyc. And what they'll find are actually like uh, two full length reports, research uh, as well in, included in it, as well as a long list of our larger recommendations. At currently a Good Shepherds, one of the things that we have realized is that you cannot do this work externally just from an advocacy perspective, that you have to take the time to look within your agency and think about how are you replicating inequities um, and how are you doing that work from a systemic and structural level while also focusing on the interpersonal work. So my role is largely focused on both of those. How are we changing internal systems as well as developing an anti-racist lens on a collective and individual level. Um, and, I, and I have done consulting and do facilitation as well. I could be reached at noriega.di at gmail.com. And I'm more than happy to kind of talk through people about some of the processes that we are launching for equitable hiring practices and even how are we, we are enhancing the systems that we have in place. Thank you all for your generosity of sharing and wisdom and I hope many people take you up on um, partnering with you as they're developing alternative, innovative, or how do you just start this process? When we come back, we're going to go right where Marta said is what's, what are other options? What's happening? I need a little hope. Um, yeah, and so let's just take a couple minute break and then we'll come on back. Tune in to The Truth is Funny with Colette Stephan each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show will have you thinking outside the box and riding the wave of infinite potential. Join Colette on the Higher Self Network, inspiring listeners to shine their brilliance and ensure success while roaring with laughter as they recognize the humor of the giant cosmic joke. Visit TheTruthIsFunny.com. We remember a time when you could simply form a thought and it would manifest. The harmony was forgotten, but it is returning now. The power of inspiration and awakening radio with Juliet Griffin on TransformationTalkRadio.com each second and fourth Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific. We'll take you on adventures through the heart and spirit exploring who we once were. This intuitive healer studied under the guidance of wolves, learning from their wisdom to master a higher frequency for a new state of mind. Visit OneTrueSelf.com. Right now, ask yourself, how far are you from your dream? Are you closer today than yesterday? Entrepreneur and personal coach Deborah Rothschild brings the wit and wisdom to transform you into a new dynamic you. Tune in to the Deborah Rothschild Show, developing a dynamic you. To learn more about Deborah, visit thedebrashow.com. That's the D-E-B-R-A show.com. Tune in live every Wednesday, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on transformationtalkradio.com. Do you want the knowledge and wisdom to understand where spirituality, science, and psychology intersect? Then join the Karmic Path Radio Show with Tina and Laura on TransformationTalkRadio.com, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Pacific. Follow this charmingly, disarmingly dynamic duo as they explore how psychic ability, spirituality, and karmic law tie together. For more information on Tina, Laura, and their groundbreaking work, 
visit thekarmicpath.com. Tune in to Lucid Planet Radio with Dr. Kelly Neff. This hit show will illuminate your senses and empower you beyond your daily stressors and hardships. Renowned psychologist and author Dr. Kelly will captivate you with far-reaching topics and amazing guests as you wake to the greatest version of yourself. Learn to tap into your intuitions, think critically about our world, heal emotional and psychological wounds, and follow your passions to live your dreams. The Lucid Planet. Welcome home. Visit lucidplanetradio.com for more information. What is a brilliant culture, and how do we create them? Why are they important? Claudette Rowley has created a breakthrough five-step process to help you align your culture with your business strategy for exceptional results. Looking for a culture that drives organizational excellence? Listen to Cultural Brilliance Radio, the second and fourth Friday of each month at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Transformation Talk Radio. To learn more or work with Claudette, visit culturalbrilliance.com. Welcome back to Transformation Change Radio. I'm Kathy O'Bear, and I am so honored to have Marta Elena Escaline as well as Diana Noriega here talking about these persistent, for decades, use of these standardized tests to then perpetuate the similar, the same racist, classist dynamics we see in these um, honors programs and these gifted, talented First part of the program, we talked about some of the problems and the racist, classist ways, anti-immigrant ways these were created. What we'd like to move on to is, so I think I just read this morning, over a thousand universities have gone to either test optional or no longer asking for SAT. And I don't know enough about gifted, talented programs across the nation, but what are some alternatives? What are some ways that places have revolutionized and just said, no, we're doing something different. And then the results, like for instance, Wake Forest, I read what 2009 went test optional, almost doubled the number of um, folks of color at Wake Forest and the results of academic achievement and graduations are the same, whether you apply to test. So that's over a decade at a quote elite, historically predominantly white campus. So, whether it's K-12 or there's college, what's happening? What's possible? Yeah, I can start on the K-12 end. So what we have found as part of our recommendation was that, yeah, we use Joseph Renzulli's model as an example, and he's considered to be one of the, the godfathers of gifted and talented. Uh, his, he has a school enrichment model which would be school-wide on the elementary school level. So essentially, you would, might have a STEM program. You might have a performing arts program. You might have a math program. So it's basically how do you introduce resources across an entire school and give students the opportunity to kind of tap in in ways that make sense for them. Um, and and it, it would, again, create access for all. Essentially, that's what it is. It's an access for all model that we are learning not a lot of people understand how to implement it. Um, and so it would require a lot of kind of support and funding, quite frankly. Um, but when people are holding on to something, we really want them to get them to understand, look at how many more kids would benefit if we expanded this model. There's also magnet schools. Um, which focus particularly on a topic, and that works for middle school and high school especially. Elementary school is still early. Young people are still figuring out, what am I good at? What do I like? Um, they're growing into that. But by the time they reach middle and high school, 
school, a magnet school model could be really effective to give them the room to really kind of fine tune and develop one set of skills. On the high school level, there's also the international baccalaureate degree. That's also a really effective model. Um, and then you have dual language programs, which in New York City in some ways have been used to reinforce segregation, but could be if done really well with an integration formula, uh, which is what we recommend. Nothing that you do should not have some kind of uh, guardrail to ensure that integration is happening. Um, those programs are also a really effective way to kind of develop student skill sets. And then there's career and technical education, which we know is also really important for our young people to have options to develop a vocational kind of career set. So in the K through 12 level, those models make a lot of sense um, and really encourage really kind of the development of a range of skills for, for young people, regardless of where they're at kind of on the spectrum. I just finished reading um, White Rage by Carol Anderson. Mm. I am deeply enraged at the centuries of intentional white supremacy and racism, which I knew a little about, but nowhere. And so um, to your point, the segregation on, of housing in so many ways, and then the school system funding, which is so based on real estate mm -hmm. tax base. Could you say a little bit more, Diane, of what creative ways are some organizations, some areas shift, I'm assuming you have to shift that in order to yeah. realize this is about the highest good for the area and the country and the world. And to do that, we have to be in a community-based model, not mm -hmm. just your district gets to fund by real estate taxes. Right, right. Um, that is absolutely a part of the reason why New York City has an exacerbated problem around um, segregation is because of housing policies. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that, that become really critical is that the education department communicate with the housing department on the, on the city level and even on the state level. Because um, in some ways it connects to these arbitrary district lines that are drawn decades ago that no longer make any sense. It's, it's really gerrymandering on a local level. Um, so how do we redraw district lines in a way that's more equitable? The other piece is that we've made clear is that we've asked the mayor to make sure that these two pieces are, these two groups are communicating effectively to really limit unintended consequence. And whenever you're crafting a policy for inclusion, you have to really ask the question on the front end, what are the potential unintended consequences for me doing X, Y, or Z, whatever it is, because I might think it's really great. Bloomberg thought it was great to introduce a test for four-year-olds. That's gonna be an equalizer and it had the exact opposite impact. So if we're not asking these hard questions on the front end, that's like another problem. Um, we also are advocating for the elimination of zones, zone schools. You could be living in a neighborhood, and we heard this time and time again from young people. I live five blocks away from this school, but I can't get into it. My zone is actually a bus right away. And because schools prioritize by zone, some schools do, I might not be able to get into that really good school that's just right there for me because I missed the boundary by two, three blocks. So the system, again, it currently the way the zoning and the district lines are set up, they don't work. They just don't work and they don't make sense. Then of course, you know, we, we talk about the need to make sure that we're, we have fair and equitable housing policies that don't encourage the, evic the eviction of people of color.
because that's something else that happens. We saw this particularly, um, I want to say, near the Navy Yard in Brooklyn. And that neighborhood used to be poor. This high poverty. Resources were not getting fed into that district. And then the Navy Yard became a popular place, popular place to live in. So what you saw happen, um, and I'll use MS-447 as an example, you started to see gradually the number of kids of color in that school go down. And the number of teachers of color also went down. And so it became a more affluent school, and this is in the Park Slope District 15 area, which actually implemented a diversity plan last year and has launched it this year. And it took them months to develop that through a collaborative community process, which is what you're hinting at, Kathy. You also have to involve all the key stakeholders in these conversations. And so District 15, which is a highly segregated district, went through this comprehensive community building process. And some of what we're hearing today about the pushback came out of that district, but because it was done collaboratively, they came up with a plan that eliminated some of these boundaries to better diversify the schools. So we'll see how that particular school and other schools in that district start to slowly shift because it might, it's going to shift back. Not fully, but it will be more diverse as a result of us kind of changing the parameters. But there absolutely needs to be communication with housing authorities and officials as you're doing this work to limit the harm and the impact that's happening on local levels. So much we could talk about, as I know we all do teacher development, I'm thinking with more racially and class diverse schools, it's going to have to be a lot of administrator, teacher development, culture, climate change. And I, we just lived in Brooklyn, um, closer down to the two on the Sterling um, site. And I, I watched gentrification happening so what you're describing, I bet, with more wealthy whites coming into many parts of Brooklyn and other places, is just exacerbating and without intentional conversation and willingness for particularly wealthy, upper middle class and above whites, maybe some folk of color saying it's in all of our interests to have these schools that are serving all. Come on in, talk yeah. about um, college a bit. Hi, Red. So I'd like to actually... Um challenge us to think even more deeply about how deficit paradigms are impacting even the way we see issues of access and equity in higher ed. And what I mean by that is, so uh, if our focus is solely on, um, if we recognize that the SAT and these other standardized tests, one, don't measure intelligence. Um, and two, if we recognize that, um, intellectual inferiority or the notion that Black and Latinx and those from under-resourced communities or poor communities are less intelligent, right? If we recognize those two things, um, you know, we could, if we say, well, let's just get rid of those exams and let's, let's do them a favor and let more of them in to try to make their lives better, right? Or give them access to these opportunities, right? And that is a progressive way of thinking, but it's actually still, in my opinion, really infused with a lot of um, implicit racist ideologies. And so what I would argue is, um, and my work is guided by a few critical questions, if the purpose of a liberal arts education um, is to prepare the next generation of thought leaders, citizens, change agents to um, optimally contribute to our democracy, 
Um, one, how will we identify those change agents and leaders? And two, what skills will they need to impact the change that we so desperately need in our world and our communities? So if you shift that question, does that test tell us anything about what does that test tell us? It tells us not only your economic circumstances, but how well you do on the test. So, the, so really to think about who do we need? What kinds of people do we need? What kinds of skills to change our world, to change our country, to move, move us forward? Collaboration, right? Innovation, the ability to work across difference, the ability to think really critically from multiple perspectives. You wouldn't want someone who is, I don't know, um, let's say, you know, I would say if I was in a position, let's say I was going to the hospital, right? And I needed somebody who was going to be treating me for some kind of disease. Maybe I had cancer. I think if I had a doctor who had either had cancer, had experience with family members who had cancer or knew what that process was like, that person might talk to me a little bit differently, right? Than someone who doesn't. That's just a really kind of simple analogy, but just to think about, um, really understanding that those who are most impacted, I think, by some of these social issues that we're having, I think disproportionately negatively impacted, probably have new and creative and innovative solutions that we haven't even thought about. So for me, as we start to think about the next level, a lot of what we're doing at Rutgers Newark is creating different kinds of metrics to um, admit students based on the way that they work in groups and teams, how they're thinking critically, um, you know, understanding of, um, of issues of cultural competence and diversity. We're in a really diverse world, right? There's so many ways that we can assess that um, outside of the test. So we do a holistic interview process, but we're also deeply looking, and I think a lot of these other institutions are doing this too, at the academic trends on a transcript. It tells us so much more uh, about a student's ability to do well than a test. Within the context, within the school district that you were in, as Diana was mentioning, how did you do? How did you do, um, what, what, you know, was it, did you have an upward incline in your grades? Did you stay the same? Were there bumps in the road? What, what was your educational journey like? What kinds of t um, courses did you take? Um, and in addition to that, like, what were you involved in? What was happening? Were you working full-time while also going to school? What are the other factors that were impacting your academic success? And do you have, for us, we're really interested in um, the coping mechanisms. The ability to stay in school retention, right, and the, the ability to stay the course is so much, um, our, our ability to see that is based on behavior from the past. Mm -hmm. What is your behavior? Have you, did you fail and get back up? Has something happened in your family, in your life, right? What does that resiliency look like? What, what, how did you use your resources around you to um, remedy that situation? Um, do you see yourself as having any power, agency, or control over your circumstances, or is it all external? What did you change when you failed? I mean, there's so many behavioral indicators that tell us more about a student's ability to, to stay the course in school. So I think um, that's what we're doing at Rutgers Newark is absolutely developing those admission standards, but then also to your point, Kathy, this is the last point I wanna say, okay, it's more than just getting into college. 
What are mm -hmm. we doing within these environments that are supporting the success of all students? Best practices, high impact practices that, that have been, that are evidence-based, right? So they've studied them, they do, they really have a major impact are one, um, wraparound advising services, right? So where you're getting academic advisement connected to counseling services, financial aid, living learning communities, culturally responsive pedagogy in classrooms, mm -hmm. right? Thinking about is the content related to me? How can we bring some of these concepts to life, right? Or do we have to learn? Is the only way to learn about um, some of these ideas through studying um, white men, right? Or um, those from wealthy communities or those who are identified as, um, you know, within the canons, right? Or how do we make this um, information relevant? Community engaged work, right? There's so many um, best practices within college environments that um, really support um, underrepresented students. And, and actually, Tara Yoso, just to kind of call out her work, she does a lot of work on sort of cultural resource models. So really looking again, not, not at the deficit, well, why aren't students of color making it, but actually what do we have already, the ways in which we operate within community settings that would actually help us to be successful and creating infrastructures that are really focused on community, the, collect, the collective as Diana talks about, right? They're not, not this individualistic model. And so, so many colleges and universities, the cohort models come out of Mm -hmm. um, that entire body of research. That's what Posse was, right? Is this idea that you're not there by yourself, but you're in community. So these yeah, are just I, some ideas, yes. No, I, if I could add, I think too, is the requirements around it in schooling. So we see more and more states and cities across the country introducing culturally responsive pedagogy as part of the curriculum and actually right. passing state law. Mm -hmm. requiring that. New Jersey has LGBTQ, LGBTQ curriculum yeah. now. Um, I believe I saw Oregon has indigenous people studies. Like, so it, it, it's almost, also, this is where I speak about the systemic change as well. That's so critical and parallel and central to this work that you, you have to, and I tell you, you have to change hearts and minds and you also have to change systems. Mm -hmm. And if we don't change systems simultaneously while we're doing the other work, we're going to, the, the process is going to go a lot slower than it needs to be. So who are the bold and courageous leaders who are willing to do the right thing, regardless of reputation in the moment? History isn't made by people who are, who are scared to do the right thing. They're willing to stand in integrity regardless mm -hmm. of what the backlash might be. And that's what we need. We need more of that. People who are willing to say, how do we counteract the, na the national narrative that's mm -hmm. coming out of the political climate and really shift it towards what we're trying to be in a multicultural, pluralistic society that requires a collective, a development of collective consciousness and space. So in the, in the workplace right now, what we're doing, one thing that we're doing is we're prioritizing cultural humility. We, we don't just call it cultural competency because you can't necessarily always be competent in someone else's culture. Um, and cultural humility is the practice of, of examining self as well as doing your part to learn more about the beliefs of others. And it comes out of the health uh, sector largely, but really how are we cultivating and prioritizing this? So should you be able to get a promotion if you don't have a strong skill set around cultural humility? Right. Particularly when 99% of our, our participants are black and Latinx. I don't know that that's a fair and valid way. And so this is, to Martha, you were saying something that reminded me of that, right? Until we start placing value 
mm-hmm. on this knowledge and learning, people are not going to feel like they have to shift. Mm-hmm. And so one time um, a lawyer that I worked for told me that she said, I can't get people to accept me, but I can get them to tolerate me through the law. Um, I want acceptance ultimately, but I have to encourage that kind of pathway towards acceptance. And that's by requiring and changing some systems. Totally agree. I wish we had more time. And particularly, Marta, as you were describing the critical skills that all leaders need today for the world and it's demanding if we're going to leave it for generations, even one generation to come. Mm-hmm. When I was coming out of high school, I did not have those skills. And mm-hmm. so if I was being evaluated based on my current capacity to demonstrate those critical leadership skills for the 21st century, I probably mm-hmm. would not have gotten into the college, mm-hmm. much less if I was in an honors program. And so we, you all are really challenging the huge elephants in the room of privilege. And um, we do it this way and we are the right way. We have two minutes to closing. As mm-hmm. we close out, would you please just share again how people can learn more and more importantly for me, if they wanna continue in dialogue with you and ha- maybe work with you to come to their organization to help them do what you're doing, how can they contact you? Um, sure. So, um, like I said, I mean, I do both diversity, equity, inclusion kind of consulting work for higher ed institutions. I work uh, with both students, with, with students, administrators, and faculty around creating more inclusive communities. Um, talking about how issues of um, social inequity are operating in um, spaces and places um, to impact student success. Um, but I also am sort of thinking about re- or reimagining, we call it revolutionizing honors, reimagining admissions, both um, in terms of access and equity, but also like creating infrastructures within the college environment to, again, um, you know, kind of promote and ensure the success of all students. And I can be reached at martaesquilin.com. And all this information and bios are on the link at Transformation Change Radio. Diana, one last time, how people can contact you, please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm particularly focused on the nonprofit sector, um, particularly social services, youth development, anything kind of in that realm um, related to educational and racial justice. So I would say noriega.di, N-O-R-I-E-G-A dot D-I at gmail.com is probably the best way to reach me. I hope you feel my deep gratitude here both for your work in the world, your willingness to come on and share and to help me see how little I know, even after researching this for a couple yeah. hours. And as always, if folks want to know what free access to resources I have, drkathyorbear.com backslash events couple courses around designing, facilitating workshops, navigating difficult situations, free access to my book, but I'm not racist might be the best way to go. If you're having any triggers to hearing what my incredible guests today are talking about, work your privilege around race and then also do class. Thank you for coming to Transformation Change Radio. I will see you next month where I'm with Dr. Tanya Williams, healing our marginalized identities, working towards liberation. Have a great month. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. 
Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.